Okay, friends, if you have a Bible, if you would grab it as you find your seat. This is the last of our series in the Psalms, and we are looking this morning at Psalm 111. If you would please stand and give your attention to God's Word as Brad comes and reads it for us. Psalm 111. Here we are. Here we are with Psalm 111 reading from the ESV. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright and the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated, please. Father, would you take your word now, and would you help us to be changed by the preaching of your word to bring us to repentance and joy. In Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 111 has a twin. That's Psalm 112. They're both written in such a way to be an acrostic poem. Do you know what an acrostic poem is? Where each line begins with a different letter, in this case, of the Hebrew alphabet. So the word praise the Lord in Hebrew is the word hallelujah. That's set apart. But then the next line, all of the couplets, and then the last two triplets, all begin with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And I wish in English, as we translated Hebrew, we could put this into our language. But it's, frankly, it's too hard to find a Z for the last line. You know, the, his praise endures forever. I don't, I don't know how you'd say that. So it's, it's not an acrostic for us, but it is in Hebrew. And the point of the psalm is to teach God's people how to worship. The psalm was written after, after the Babylonian captivity. When King Cyrus released Israel to go back to Jerusalem, to go and rebuild the temple, to go and rebuild the walls of the city, it was an incredible display of God's faithfulness to his people. Amidst captivity in a sovereign nation that had taken over Israel, Babylon, the king had his heart turned so that he released the Jews to go back to Jerusalem. And in praise of that, the psalm is written to say, Lord, praise your name for your faithfulness and the way that you have worked in each of our lives. This psalm reminds us what worship is. 
in the context of Babylon, it was a time of them to greatly rejoice in the Lord. The problem, though, with Israel is the same problem that we have. When I say the word worship to you, what do you chiefly think of? When I say, let's go to worship, what do you almost immediately think of? The singing. It's as if you, in your mind, without even being instructed, have separated out church. You have the singing part, that's worship, and then you have the preaching part, and that's the preaching. And those two are not the same. Indeed, the Bible argues against that way of thinking as strongly as it can. Because in our service, everything from the prelude, when TJ leads us in the prelude to prepare your hearts for worship, all the way until the benediction and the dismissal, the entirety of the service is worship. And when you begin to think of worship as just the singing part, what happens? Well, for you men, it just reinforces the idea that church is inherently feminine, doesn't it? Like you come to sing, for many of you, singing songs seems so, you sing your feelings. Who wants to do that for a lot of the guys? But friends, worship is so much more than that. And this psalm helps us to learn a very important thing, namely that worship is more intellectual than the hardest calculus problem. It is more emotional than the greatest comeback victory. Worship is, requires more concentration than doing your tax return. Hmm? And worship requires more motivation or is more motivating, I should say, than the greatest salary incentive you would receive at your work. Worship requires the whole of your life. And the point of the psalm is worship with your whole heart will change your whole life. My favorite class in college was a class called Anatomy and Physiology. It's a fascinating class because finally you could see why we learned chemistry and biochem and organic and biology all these years. It came together in this class called Anatomy and Physiology. And what that class taught us is that there was one central focus system that begins when a child is only three weeks old in their mother's womb. And that is when the child is no bigger than a letter in your bulletin. Think about this. No bigger than a letter in your bulletin. The Lord begins to give them a beating heart. And what we learned in that class is that a heart is a dual pump. That means it has one side of your heart pumps to your lungs. The other side of your lung uh, heart pumps your oxygenated blood to all of the vital organs of your body. And this heart pumps three billion times in a lifetime. And when this young child is barely three weeks old in their mother's womb, this heart begins to pump, and it will until the day that the Lord calls us home. Except for very short times between beats, the heart is constantly working. And such is the same when you come to worship. In verse 1, you see the dual heart pump of worship. Look down with me, if you would, at verse 1. It says, praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. This is personal worship. 
This is the one side of the heart of worship that must pump. Your personal worship. Michelangelo one time inherited a huge block of marble. And when he received this huge block of marble, he could tell that some amateur sculptor had already taken turns at it. It had dents all over it. It was, oh, he was an inheritor of this piece of marble. He didn't know what to do with it, except he had one single passion in his life, and that was sculpture. And so Michelangelo took this one giant block of marble, and he went at it with everything that he had. He put his whole heart into it. There are books that are written. The Agony and Ecstasy by Irving Stone tells the story of Michelangelo working on this one piece of marble so long that his left hand would go completely numb. And when it did, he would switch with his right and he would keep chiseling away. He abandoned fresh clothing. He abandoned food. Friends had to tell him to take a break. He went after it with everything that he had. He gave his whole life to this giant piece of marble. And you know what? After time, when people had no idea what Michelangelo was doing, that piece of marble got shaped and chiseled and formed and crafted into the priceless treasure that we have in Western art today, David. In fact, when the one who gave Michelangelo this giant piece of marble saw this sculpture of David, finished in all of its brilliance, he had the audacity to look at Michelangelo and say, hey, whatever happened to that big piece of marble that I gave you? Some of you, when you come to worship, Christian worship, you just kind of feel like you're coming to work on a big old piece of marble. It's kind of boring. It's not entertaining enough. But what happens in Christian worship is that the Holy Spirit, week by week by week, moment by moment, begins to shape and hone and craft and make you something beautiful. And when you come to public worship, which is where we are right now, a big part of your ability to participate fully in worship means that you've prepared your heart for that. The psalmist says, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. Next, he says, in the company of the upright in the congregation. Not only is worship private, but it's also public. And that what is going on right now in this hour of your week is far more important than you could imagine. Because it is Jesus the Christ who is taking you, this piece of marble, and he is chiseling away slowly but surely, yes, through your private worship, but also and maybe even more powerfully through his public worship. And he is forming you and he is molding you into who you are. And there are some of us here, when you come to, to public worship, to gathered worship that we, we don't really know how to bring our private worship to bear here. We, we feel like, you know, like th there are certain ways that Trinity does church that are foreign or different to us. And I, I want you to know that the bulletin is designed, the order of service is designed in such a way as to take you through the drama of Scripture, to help you see the presence of Jesus, to experience his love and your confession, your bold confession of sin, to hear him speak to you, 
and then to be able to respond in faith and obedience as you come running to the Lord's table. It's a drama every week. And Jesus Christ and his presence is the chief thing that marks Christian worship as opposed to all other kinds of worship. And I know some of you who um, have come here, listen, you're, you're hand raisers, which is awesome. The problem is sometimes when you come, when you come to public worship, you don't feel the freedom to raise your hands. And friends, I just want to say, like, if you're a hand raiser when you worship, raise your hands. Worship him. If you need to fall on the floor, fall on the floor. I mean, worship him with your whole heart. I was thinking about this in AIM Discipleship, about the fear of man that a lot of us hand raisers have. We don't want to raise our hands because we, we're afraid. And like Psalm 56.3 says, when I'm afraid, I will trust in you, in you whose word I praise, in you I trust, I will not be afraid. What can mortal man do to me? Don't be afraid. We need your private worship to bear forth fruit in public worship. Do you know what I mean when I use that language? We need you. Some of you have come off a week where you're incredibly grateful, incredibly grateful because the drunk driver driving on the road missed you and the kids by three feet. Some of you come and you are incredibly humbled because people rallied around you to bear your problems and to help meet some of your physical needs. We need you. Some of you are in the depths of grief because you just lost a loved one this week. And you bring that grief to public worship. We need you. That's what the church is for. All of us together in our individual unique experiences coming together to worship in the presence of King Jesus, to encourage one another with our grief and with our gratitude and with our thankfulness. And if you need to shout out, then shout it. On the other hand, if you are more like John Wesley, who when you worship, as he wrote when he was converted, he was reading, you know, he's hearing a lecture on um, the, the book of, uh, the preface of, that Luther wrote, the book of Galatians. And Wesley, you know, he was, a, he was British. He didn't know how to raise his hand. He, he said, um, my heart was strangely warmed. And if your heart is strangely warmed and you're not a hand raiser, then let your heart be strangely warmed and worship with your whole heart and feel zero pressure to raise your hands. But be who the Lord has created you to be. And you'll encourage the congregation in so doing. And regardless of if you're a hand raiser or if you are a strangely warmed hearted person, we need you with us as we worship. Because do you know what the primary critique that the Lord had against Israel was in worship? The primary critique all through the Old Testament was what? That people were unable to worship the Lord. Why? Because they didn't know the songs? No. Because it didn't dress the right way? No. Consistently, all the way through the Old Testament, the primary critique the Lord had of Israel, and the reason why they were unable to worship is because the Lord said, you have not listened to my voice. In Jeremiah chapter 7, 
There was evil in the land, and the Lord says this, thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, add your burnt offerings and your sacrifices and eat the flesh. For in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I did not speak to your fathers or command them concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices, but this command I gave them, obey my voice and I will be your God and you will be my people. And walk in the way that I command you that it may be well with you. But listen, but they did not incline their ear, but walked in their own counsels and the stubbornness of their evil hearts. And they went backward, not forward. From the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent all of my servants, the prophets, to them day after day. Yet they did not know my songs, didn't dress right. No, no, no. The primary critique of worship. They did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. And they did worse than their fathers. If you think of your heart as a dual pump, you have one side of your heart pumping private worship. One side of your heart pumping public worship. And they go together. If you're someone who is all about me and Jesus, I don't need the church. It's like you are living a life with only one side of your heart that pumps. I don't know about you, but I call that a cardiac arrest. And at the same time, if there are some of you who come to corporate worship only, and it's like checking a box for you, and you don't have any kind of private time of worship, that is, that you're not experiencing the love and joy and patience and presence of Jesus throughout the course of your work week. I don't know what you would call that, but I would call that also cardiac arrest. And if there are chambers in our heart, if I can push the metaphor even further, the first chamber of the heart that's got to work is you've got to listen. It is the foundation upon which this entire psalm is written. You listen not just to the voice of the Lord in the singing of songs, but you listen to it as the sermon is being preached. And you listen to it as you come to the Lord's table in just a moment. You hear his voice. The thing that you need the most, men, the thing that people in Ashley Madison need the most is to hear the voice of the Lord and to listen to that voice. But that's not the only aspect of worship you see in this psalm. It doesn't just require your ears. Worship also requires your head, doesn't it? As I said earlier, it's more intellectual than doing the hardest calculus problem. What do I mean by that? It means that we are calling you to use your head, not turn it off. Use your brains in worship. Think about what the Lord has done in your life, both in the example we have throughout Scripture, but also in your own lives. Listen, it says, great are the works of the Lord, studied, verse 2, by all who delight in them. That's speaking to the intellectual parts of worship. But it's not just what you think in your head. It's also what you feel in your heart, right? It is more emotional than the greatest comeback victory as if, as if A&M somehow beat Alabama. I would be freaking out. Brad says that would never happen. But it's more emotional than even that. That's the beauty of worship. Look, at, look what it says in verse 3. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. At some point in Christian worship, 
as you hear his voice, you begin to think about what he's done in your life, and then you begin to feel it. And then the last verse of the psalm, it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. So worship, friends, requires principally listening or hearing God's voice. But secondarily, and no less important, it requires thinking, it requires feeling, it also requires responding. Those, if you will, are the four chambers of the heart of worship. Listening, thinking, feeling, responding. And for some of you, those will come in various orders at various seasons of your life. It doesn't always come to the head, to the feelings, and then you respond. Sometimes you respond, and then you feel it, then you think about it. Every one of us are different kind of learners. Every one of us experience the gospel in different ways. But those are always all present in Christian worship. Now, why are we to worship this way? Namely, listening and thinking and feeling and responding. We're to worship this way for two reasons. Because we wonder at his works and we hear the wisdom of his voice. Go with me if you would. Look down at verse 2. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Everywhere we see the fingers of the omnipotent God, the mysteries of the Adam, the majesty of the stellar empires. By his word, galaxies orbit, stars are formed, atoms move, all by the word of his power. They are to be studied and delighted in. And not just on Sunday. Some of the reason why you have, how do I say it? You're frustrated in a worship is because Sunday you think about worship, but Monday through Friday you have no resources of how to apply the gospel to the way you work. And men, especially I'm talking to you right now, for those of you who have jettisoned the church in many ways, because you just don't know how it applies. Everything you do at your job is an extension of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ if you are a Christian. Even the most menial tasks become a way for you, an opportunity for you to worship. And I know it's hard. I, I wasn't always a minister. It's hard. But you need to be fierce scholars of your field and your industry to recognize where the direction of your industry is going and how you can mold and shape it to demonstrate the beauty of the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. For, so for some of you who are managers, it might mean not that you manage your employees more. It might mean that you back off of them and you give them some freedom to be creative, right? Like Google, you know, Google years ago when they first started, they don't do this anymore, but Google had 20% time where they said one-fifth of our time as an employee of this company is dedicated to you doing what you think you need to do to make this company better. We don't care what it is. Do stuff that's cool. So they did. 
They followed the example of, of, uh, of 3M, which did this back in the 80s. And out of 3M, what did they come up with? They came up with a Post-it note. That wasn't planned. That was because some employee creatively came up with a cool way to make 3M better and the world better by circumstance. Google came up with Gmail through 20% time. It wasn't planned. They came up with AdSense by giving employees the freedom to just do stuff creatively on their own to make the company better. Daniel, what was Daniel's job under Nebuchadnezzar? Like Daniel's job was to be the best at what he could possibly be. Daniel's job was to make, to say it bluntly, to make Nebuchadnezzar and his administration as much money as possible. And he was good at it. Men, women, we want you to be good at your work by applying the gospel into the daily routines of your lives. And we want community groups to be a place where you can talk more and more about that because we want you to rest in worship. We want you to grow in community and we want you to rediscover your calling. Those are the three core values of our church. To rest in worship, to grow in community, and to rediscover your calling. And you can't begin to grow in community or to rediscover your calling until you first learn to rest in worship. Which means that if the most important person in the world right now, like the coolest person, kids, that you could think of, like walked through this door, the coolest person, what would you do? Would you be like frizzing yourself up to like get stuff done and like, like go and like, you know, bug them about what you could do for them? What can I do for you? What can I do for you? No. Every one of you, if the most important person in the world to you comes to this door, every one of you would stop what you're doing and you would listen to every word they said. It's the same in worship. And to rest under the nurtured admonition of Jesus means that you just stop doing all of your frenetic activity and you rest in his presence to let him remind you that he loves you. And that he came for you. And God is trying to help you do that in corporate worship by showing you that he is full of splendor and majesty in his work. Verse 4. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. This harkens back to the Passover feast. That's what that verse is talking about. When he provided food for Israel before they were taken out of bondage in Egypt. He provided for them a way of escape by taking the scapegoat and putting the blood over the doorway so that the angel of death would pass by and not take out the firstborn children of that house. He has shown his people, verse 6, the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. This speaks to the Abrahamic covenant of which you and I are a part. That God has promised that I will put more people in your descendancy, Abraham, than there are sands on the beach. Stars in the sky. And I will give you a land, and in that land you will rest. But they never were fully able to rest, were they? Why? Because they stopped listening to the Lord. And now we have the opportunity to enter the land every week at worship. His presence, his kingdom is the land. And we're able to rest in his finished work 
Because God is not only one who is omnipotent and all-powerful and almighty and just and beautiful and holy. Not only is he one who sits with ministers by his side who are flames of fire, sinless sons of light and the angels. Not only is he on his throne and the carpet of his palace is paved with glass clear as crystal, but he loved you so much that he sent his son to be born in a feeding trough to be a carpenter, to be the sinless son of God. From the heights of royalty to the depths of poverty, the Lord descended for you. And Jesus meets you every week and says, I'm here. I love you. Worship me with all of your heart by listening to my voice, by remembering what I've done for you, by feeling my presence, and by responding in faith. That is the wonder of his works. And lastly, the psalmist says in verse 7 through 10 that you must hear the wisdom of his voice. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. God's work is guaranteed by his nature. He made a covenant promise to Abraham, and through ignorance and sin, for 4,000 years, he's kept that promise. And that promise is yours. And you see that promise when you look at the cross, the sinless Son of God who died for you. Do you hear him? The Holy Spirit is chipping away at marble. He's forming you into a David. He's helping you become who you are, something beautiful in his sight, loved by him. And it's our challenge and our job as a church to let the dual pump of our heart of worship constantly beat. Three billion times in a lifetime, maybe that's too low. Private worship, public worship. Giving the life power of the good news to every organ of your life and encouraging others to enjoy the same. Friends, your Savior loves you. Respond in obedience through repentance. Respond to those of you who don't believe in faith that he would love you so much to die for you. And children, that's true of your mom and dad, just as true as it is for you. Today is the day you should worship and believe. Let's pray together. Father, would you help us to stand in awe of such love, to listen, to think, to feel, to respond in repentance and faith, to wonder at your works, to hear the wisdom of your voice. May our public and our private worship pump the gospel through our veins and help us to rest in your presence as those who are loved beyond compare. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.